Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. Our Four Freedoms series this week, though, continues with freedom of speech. Easy to imagine, complicated in practice, and far more complicated today than it was when FDR outlined the Four Freedoms. Stephen Thrasher is a senior columnist for The Guardian. He's both a practitioner of free speech and a victim of its online instability and vitriol. When The Guardian recently analyzed 70 million comments from its website over the past decade to better understand which writers received the most negative comments, eight were women and the other two were black men. Thrasher was one of them. How has freedom of speech evolved since 1941? Thrasher says, for starters, there are plenty more platforms available to people these days. The number of channels of communication are much more now. Um, they're, they're much wider. Uh, when you look back at Roosevelt's era, we're talking about only a few broadcasters, uh, only a few publication outlets, and of course, everything is much wider now. But something that's quite similar is that we always have to wonder whose speech are we talking about. So if you're thinking about it in the 1940s, um, Roosevelt obviously is not thinking necessarily about the freedom of the speech of the Japanese, for example. No. And who's, whose speech is going to be included at the table and uh, permitted to be heard in, on a wide scale is always going to be a very contested thing, no matter the historical period you're talking about. Looking at it from the standpoint of uh, there's more speech now and more different kinds of speech now, what do you make of the abusive targeting of people online? Is that uh, something that it's better to have out in the open, uh, reveal something about our society? What do you think? I have very ambivalent feelings about comments on stories. Uh, when I worked at the Village Voice years ago, everything was allowed to be said. And so as I talked about in the Guardian story, you know, people would routinely call me a nigger or a faggot and nobody would take it out of the comments. Uh, the Guardian does siphon those comments out. And we looked at 70 million comments over about a decade and out of 12,000 writers, uh, I was one of the top 10 people to have my comments filtered uh, because people would just say such vitriolic things. And I've certainly learned from talking to particularly women colleagues and women colleagues of color, they can be writing about very uncontroversial things, and yet people will still come at them with these really horrifying things. So as a publication, I don't mind comments getting taken out. I don't see that as a stifling of speech. Um, and I've certainly, in terms of technology, seen that over my career, people have started started talking much more through Twitter and through Facebook, uh, which I think those conversations would be more generative because they can be with people you know or sort of people that are in your circle. Everything is going to get out there in some way. Sometimes I will look at sites like Stormfront um, to see what white supremacists are talking about. And organizations like the Southern Poverty Law Center and Hate Group Watchdogs will look at those places and find interesting things. Uh, but I don't know that it's always helpful to have that stuff always lobbed at writers of color, gay writers, women writers who are very unlikely to have much free speech because they're highly unlikely to even get journalism jobs in the first place. That refers to uh, discrimination, which, of course, has the consequence of uh, limiting speech uh, if it limits the number of people who can actually speak to the nation I I through journalistic uh, institutions. But uh, there are many other ways to speak to the nation today. Do you think that speech is freer and more open today with these mechanisms or are we enforcing a kind of politically correct speech that makes it harder to say certain things without getting in all kinds of trouble? 
I don't think we're making it harder. Um, people are definitely going on the offense to try to have more speech, and we certainly see ways that it has an effect. Uh, you know, the the killing of Mike Brown is something that we first learned about through social media. A lot of the police deaths we first learned about through social media. And so they didn't have to go through the filter of journalism to kind of come into the public consciousness. And that's a really important thing. We've also seen through the Black Lives Matter movement um, activists who are very willing to try to take the microphone from politicians. And I wrote about this last week, um, you know, when President Clinton is sort of saying he his speech is being curtailed when he's being interrupted. I don't think that's a really fair frame. People like President Clinton have had 400 years of having the microphone. And so when an activist tries to also say, hey, you know, we have something to say that's worthy of a white audience and tries to upstage him, I don't think that his free speech is being curtailed. I think they were actually seeing democracy in action and seeing competing visions for the country trying to to get attention. Um, that was really important speech to get out there. And we can say that it's impolite, that it's not fair, that they should wait their turn. But those people aren't likely going to get their turn unless they very directly um, confront, you know, somebody in a setting like that. It's a very different thing than when we saw Bernie Sanders actually give the stage to three young black women who who challenged him, which we don't see politicians do very often. What do you think the free speech challenge is going to be at the two conventions? There'll be some similarities and differences. At the Republicans, you're going to see, uh, I, I'm afraid, quite violent demonstrations against people trying to keep these kinds of hateful messages from coming out. You're also going to see a lot of talk about free speech in terms of Trump supporters if, if, if there's backroom dealings coming that are trying to take the nomination away from him. At the DNC, they're going to have to figure out how to deal with this insurgency of uh, black voters and, and black activists who want to keep these issues on the table because the Democratic Party wants to keep these kinds of activists in the fold. They're going to have to find a way to let them be heard, but also to respond in a graceful and interactive way when they are challenged rightly on a lot of these fronts. Stephen Thrasher is a writer at large and senior columnist for The Guardian. This is The Takeaway. Roosevelt intended that uh, the U.S. would enter World War II to fight for freedom of speech in places around the world against the dictators, as he called them in 1941. What would you say the global you know, track record is of freedom of speech in light of Charlie Hebdo and and uh, some of the issues that constrain speech around the world. Roosevelt intended and the Founding Fathers intended um, to have a sense of free speech from a very particular sense of themselves and over who was going to be speaking. And that is always uh, challenged in, you know, in different countries. We have a different sense of satire in the United States than they do in France with Charlie Hebdo. It's very different in, in England and the United States as well. And I think we always need to keep in mind that what we think of as free speech is is very linked to our own politics and economics in this country. But does that mean that freedom of speech should involve the ability to make someone really angry uh, with something that you will do either satirically or otherwise? Free speech is going to make people angry. I think when journalists are doing it right, it's going to make people in power angry. Um, so it's it's strange when President Obama uh, will weigh in on the media. It's strange you know, to hear him say that in a way because um, – 
the Edward Snowden leaks uh, were, you know, something that the Obama administration responded to uh, very aggressively in terms of putting Chelsea Manning in solitary confinement and in terms of going very aggressively after people who leak. The Obama administration has gone after people, I would say, as hard as the Nixon administration is to to plug leaks in the press. And what is free speech in that way? I mean, free speech is not sort of this this crystal clear thing. You can argue about uh, people who work for the government releasing documents. Is that free speech? Um, I think we we really needed the Snowden documents to come out. Uh, the same thing with the Panama Papers, um, things that are secret journalists need to, to bring to the fore. And so the United States government will have a project ostensibly of saying that it wants to have more free speech around the world, but it doesn't particularly want the Panama Papers out. It certainly didn't want the Snowden Papers out. And it's very aggressive in trying to keep the those kinds of things from coming to the fore. Would you fight for free speech elsewhere than the place where you live? In other words, is free speech so important that you would uh, put yourself in danger? I write very openly about my life and and I will deal with the consequences. And that's something that I do as a journalist and many people do as journalists. And I think that we're seeing a really beautiful wave of protesters right now who are putting themselves and their sense of free speech on the line when they do go to a Trump rally and speak out or when they challenge President Clinton or Secretary Clinton or Senator Sanders. Um, I, I think that people are, are sort of putting themselves out there in, in a particular way. I think it's more admirable not to say we need to go to war with a certain country to expand their free speech. I think it's more important to look at the young transgender people of color who are expressing themselves and expressing their free speech and their protest in states like Mississippi and North Carolina right now because they're putting themselves in harm's way and they're not doing it in a way that furthers militarism or economic hegemony. They're doing it in a way that tries to expand American freedom right here within our country. Stephen Thrasher is a writer-at-large and senior columnist for The Guardian U.S. He's a doctoral fellow in American Studies at NYU. Stephen, thanks so much. Thank you. Free speech or not so free? What's your experience? Eastern Pennsylvania, it humbles me to realize I've lived a life in which my right to free expression and free speech has never been challenged or stifled in any way, even as I spent many years directly involved in community action and working with governments ranging from local to federal. Hopefully my work has in some way helped others realize this privilege as well. My name is TJ and I'm calling from Montauk, New York. I was very proud of my son who expressed his right to protest in first grade. Apparently he led a many kids strike in protest of the, as he put it, bad gray sausages that the cafeteria was serving and they all stood up and protested and it was a big to do. I was very proud. This is Aharon calling from Springfield, Massachusetts. I think the whole point of the freedom of speech and freedom of expression is that the right is a guaranteed right. And we should be able to mostly take it for granted and exercise it multiple times a day in every conversation we have without fear of recourse in any kind of damaging way, physically or financially, um, or infringing on our rights in any way. Smart stuff from Maharone in Springfield, Massachusetts, and yay. Get rid of those bad gray sausages, PJ. Gray Lake, Illinois, every day that I'm allowed to show my hair, like today with the repressive policies that my family experiences in the Middle East, I'm forever grateful to my father for immigrating to this country. This is Michelle from Hawaii, and I exercised my right of free speech in 1965. I was 14. I had recently moved 
Florida and stood in front of my school history class arguing in favor of civil rights and against the argument that Negroes, quote unquote, were inherently inferior to whites. It was me against 30, including the teacher. I refused to cave. The teacher told me after the class that she admired me for taking a stand, even if she disagreed.